As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. The Archaeology Podcast Network is sponsored by PCS Jobs. APN listeners can post for free by going to arcpodnet.com forward slash PCS. That's $50 off the normal price at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash PCS. Ancient tools and burials, plants and seeds, Neanderthals. All these things we make no apology for the study of archaeology. We don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do... Welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast, Episode 73. I'm your host, Sarah Head, with my co-host today, Jeb Card. And today we have special guest, Jens Notroff from Berlin, Germany, who works on the Golbi Tepe project in Turkey. Today we're discussing a recently published academic paper titled Decoding Gobeki Tepe with Archaeoastronomy. What does the fox say? by Martin B. Sweetman and Dimitrios Tsikritsis. We apologize in advance for any name mispronunciations. My guests and I discussed the validity of the findings in this report, what the controversies are surrounding the findings of this report, and what findings the Gobeki Tepe project has found in its decades-long excavation of the site. Get ready to think critically. You will see are a staple of archaeology. But we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs, no we don't do dinosaurs. Hey everyone and welcome to the Archaeological Fantasies Podcast. I am your host Sarah Head and I am joined today by my co-host Jeb Card. How's it going Jeb? Um, I'm no longer uh, mostly sick and it's a nice day and oh my god it's been a storm of crazy archaeological crap this week. Seriously. And to help us navigate this storm, we actually have special guests with us today, Jens Nortroff from the Gobeki Tepe Project, who's going to help us suss through some of this asteroid comet stuff. Um, Jeb, you want to give us a real quick breakdown of what, what the jet storm is? Yeah. I mean, basically a few days ago, I think it may have been last Friday, I think it was last Friday, a, um, a paper broke from the journal, the peer-reviewed open source journal, and open source means it's you can download it, you can look at it. It is, it is open source, but it is peer reviewed. It's peer reviewed journal, uh, Mediterranean Archaeology and Archaeometry. And the title of this is Decoding Gobekli Tepe with Archaeoastronomy. What does the fox say? It's by Martin B. Sweatman and Dimitrios Sikritsis. Uh, and I apologize if I've mispronounced that. And they are both affiliated with the School of Engineering at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. And they have some. Fairly extraordinary claims that 
if you have followed our show and if you are sort of familiar with a lot of extreme claims about archaeology, we'll relate to some of those and we'll get more into that. But, but we were lucky to be able to get somebody who actually uh, is researching this site in in person. Yeah. So, Jens, can you can you give us a quick bio of who you are and tell us about the Gobeki Tepe project that you work on? Yeah, of course. Uh, thanks for having me on the show, by the way. Yeah, um, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to to be part of this. Um, yeah, my name is Jens Notroff. I'm a research assistant at the German Archaeological Institute at the Orient Department. And we are uh, where, where the Göbekli Tepe research project actually is based. So it's a it's a project funded by the German Research Foundation. And we're doing research where roughly since 20 years, a bit more than 20 years, the site was discovered in 1995 by Klaus Schmidt, the former head of right. project. Right. And um, yeah, we're excavating uh, two seasons a year. So I personally spent the last 10 years, a uh, uh, couple of weeks uh, each uh, spring and autumn on the side. And I imagine I have at least some overview about what's going on uh, in the excavations at least. And you have, you have, you have, before I get that, you have also uh, put yourself out there very much in social media. You write a lot. Yeah. You do a lot of public outreach. Yeah, uh, yeah. We, so we I, I think, uh, yeah, we, we, well, the point is we, in, with a site like Gerberkli Tepe, sooner or later, you encounter a lot of, let's call it strange theories, the whole ancient alien stuff and uh, uh, ancient super civilizations and so on. And it bugged us at some point, but our point of view was never noticed because, of course, we were not visible where these discussions happened in the internet and in the more popular media. And that's why we started to uh, yeah, somehow claim a little bit of the narrative back and being present in these media as well. That's awesome. Can you tell us what your research has found out about Gobeki Tepe? Okay, I'm trying to put 20 years of research into right, a nutshell right, right, now. Right. Okay, so so far, yeah, uh, it's um, it's not the oldest architecture at all, that's, uh, or the oldest building at all. Oh, really? But it's the oldest yet known monumental structures. So, I mean, we don't know if these people didn't build like shelters or anything else uh, to, to live in, but it's the monumentality we want to stress here. When you uh, say monumentality, I have seen yeah. pictures of these T-shaped, yeah. I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people are drawn to it because it has a vague similarity to Stonehenge in terms it, of like it's visual. Yeah, it's aesthetic. visually similar. It's a megalithic yeah. side. Right. Yeah, for sure. How tall are, how tall are those T-shapes? Okay, um, you know, these are, it's these circular enclosures. Uh, these are the, the part of the older layer, the older architecture. And uh, these circular enclosures are formed of T-shaped pillars in a circle. They are up to four meter heights, but they are surrounding an even larger pair in the center. And these central pillars are 5.5 meters high. So that's quite monumental if you ask that's, me. That's, that's big. Yeah. And the interesting point is that these, at least these central pillars are clearly uh, anthropomorphic. They have arms, they have hands, they have belts and loincloths. So they are meant to look like humans, but pretty large, larger than life human beings. So that's why we carefully think about uh, them being maybe on another level, another sphere than the naturalistic human life-size depiction we also have. So that's where, where the interpretation also comes into uh, into the whole narrative. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's there's an old joke in archaeology. If we don't know what it is, therefore it's ritual. But yeah, if, yeah. if you're making a giant monument to somebody that's 15 feet tall, uh, the monument is that it's not out the realm of possibility that there's some ritual thing going on here. Yeah, and I mean we know how settlements look in this time, so we know right. settlement architecture from uh, other sites, and they look different. So there is not, at least 
at current state of excavation. There's no domestic architecture on the right. side of Quebec Tepe. But what we also know from, from these settlements is that each settlement excavated on a certain scale has at least one communal building. And it's these communal oh. buildings which are resembling the structures of Quebec Tepe. So to put oh. it in at Quebec Tepe, we have a, an agglomeration of special purpose buildings, if you want right. to put it like that, yeah. And it's sort of like a super a super version of what we might see in everyday peace. Now, you've seen time. When are we talking about? Uh, yeah, uh, would be a good idea to, to give us a chronology here. So it's the, the end of the last ice age. We are at uh -huh. least in the older layers we excavated. We are in the 10th millennium BC. I think the oldest ready carbon date we have as of yet is coming from a wall cluster in one of the uh, enclosures. And it's uh, about nine... 9,900 KBC, if I'm not mistaken, something right, so 989. So just under 12,000 years ago, and I think we we yeah. may have we may have skipped this over. This is in southern Turkey. It is in southern Turkey. Yeah, it's uh, not far from the Syrian border, actually. Yeah. Okay. No. Okay. Uh, Jens, how does this last? How does this date um, that you have there? How does that apply to the younger Dryas, which is also being touted in these articles? It's right at the end of, of uh, this uh, Younger Dryas phenomenon. So it's at, the, it's, at, it's at the end of the Younger Dryas. Yeah, contrary to what's proposed in the paper, yeah, yeah. it's uh, yeah, it's rather at the end. So the Ice Age is just over. We, people are settling in a new climatic optimum. Yeah. I have a vague idea what the Younger Dryas is, but I think you're about to ask, what is the Younger Dryas? I, I was going to ask, uh, what is the Younger Dryas? So we say Ice Age, but that doesn't cover it completely. Yeah, to, to, I don't want to go into detail because right, it's a right, huge right. discussion on its own, but it basically it's just a, a, a climate a climate situation where the temperatures drop again and it's sometimes referred to as a little ice age. So it's uh, it's yeah just a cold period if we want to. Yeah, well, it. I mean, and I, I'm not, I am not an expert, but my understanding of this is that, you know, people talk about the glacial maximum, the last glacial maximum about 18,000 years ago. And then after that, global temperature starts to warm up. It's colder than today, but it's warmer than it had yep. been. Yep. Yep. And then when this happens, so that would be about 13,000 years ago? The Approximate, dryas? yeah. yeah. Um, there is a sudden drop in temperature, and it is very quick that it happens, and it lasts for about 1,000 years. Now, my understanding, and again, I, this is actually something I think we will, we'll set the stage here because we're going to have to come back to it. This article can't be understood with what we're about to, not about to talk about. Yeah. My understanding is that the general belief, although there is some discussion of this, is that with the melting of, of glaciers in North America and a lot of fresh water basically coming out of what becomes the St. Lawrence River Valley, this modifies the salinity of the North Atlantic current, basically the Gulf Stream, and makes it change course. This causes the climate fluctuation. Again, this is the general belief, as my understanding, and feel free to correct me. And this lasts for about a thousand years, and then it pretty rapidly rewarms up again. But this crashes stuff back to a more glacial climate. Is yeah, that about yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. It, to put it really short, yeah, that's that's a rough sketch of the big discussion going on. Right. Yeah. But there so, are some people that say something else, and we'll come back to that. Yeah, I, just one more point because I sure. I did not uh, come to to what we think Gabriel Tepe actually was or might have been. Um, it is situated on the highest point in the landscape, and it's not exactly a preferable settlement situation, but it's very visible. And we think it might have served ah. some kind of gathering site. You know, mobile mobile cultures or certain mobile groups need to, to meet at uh, certain occasions to exchange information, marriage partners, and so on. 
And um, we know this from from ethnology and ethnographic analogies, actually. So they they establish certain places to meet, and we think Göbekli Tepe might have been one of such places, uh, gathering places for the local groups roaming the area uh, around Göbekli Tepe. Yeah. That was actually something I both wanted to explain for audience, and actually a legitimate, excuse me, question I had. My yeah. general understanding is that one of the reasons everybody's eyes popped is that this is not only the oldest monumental architecture in yeah. the world, yeah. but it is, and this is actually a question, because I looked this up and I, I got a couple of conflicting answers. It is generally believed to be before domestication of plants and animals in the Middle East, or, yeah. right, at, or right around the time it's happening. We had the doorstep, we had the doorstep. So yeah. as of yet, any bones we found and any plants remains we found are from wild species. We don't have evidence for domesticated animals or plants as of yet from the site. But it's you know you have to take this with a grain of salt because domestication takes quite some time to right. become it's not, visible in the bone material. So Yeah, it's not like turning on a light switch. This was a long process. Takes, it and, takes but, time. But the reason why that, and I think one of the reasons why so many people have glommed, I think there's one reason, it's at a very specific time that a lot of people have an interest in. We'll get back to that. But the larger reason why is when you say monumental architecture for a very long time, Archaeologists and anthropologists would say, ah, big monumental architecture must be associated with large farming communities, even though, as you point out, there are ethnographic counterexamples. But this thing being so early and more or less, even if there's a tiny bit of agriculture, we're not talking about agricultural large uh, large societies. Yeah, yeah. People were like, what the hell? Why is this here? And exactly. as we'll talk about, it may be not so surprising. I, I'm increasingly thinking of this place like I think of, say, Poverty Point in North America, and actually there's the, the Maya side of Sebal. This has also been recently suggested that it becomes a focal place for mobile groups. But that's why people yeah. put so much attention on it. Yeah, and I mean, 20 years ago, no one would have believed that uh, hunter-gatherer societies or groups could show such stratification, which apparently might be necessary to create these large communal projects. But that's why, though, I, actually, I have some weak spot for for fancy ideas. So I'm not going to 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 um, say that's ridiculous and we don't have to dis we, we, we are not going to discuss new ideas. But sure. uh, at least we need to see the evidence. background and yeah. go into context and evidence. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So so we know where Gobeki Tepe is now, you know, we we're thinking it's it's a, a larger community site, maybe a temple. Um, it, it's but the interesting thing Sanctuary's is, temple, yeah. Right. And it's the interesting thing about the site is that it was built at a time when we're currently believing that people were very hunter-gatherers still. They were still very nomadic, so they're moving around a lot. There's not a lot of permanent settlements, and there's no definitive evidence of agriculture and domestication yet. Um, but as you were saying, that's it's a long process, so that may have been happening. We just don't see it yet. Yeah. The the problem that has come up in my Twitter feed over the last 24 hours and across like every social media outlet I have is here was this paper that Jeb mentioned earlier that has been published. Um, it's got a cute little name, but what they're claiming is that all of the work that the archaeologists have done in the past is incorrect. That Gobeki Tepe is actually an observatory, and that specifically. There is a astronomical record on one of the pillars that 
uh, records an asteroid impact. I, I think they I think they call it a comet strike. I think they focus on strike. that yes, yeah, right. yeah, for some specific reasons because they also warn about a future threat to the world. Yeah, we'll get yeah. Like, like Jeff likes to say, we'll get back to that one specifically. But <laughs> uh, this particular comet strike, apparent they claim ended. Uh, the Younger Dryas, and we yeah. know that from some other evidence. Now, if you see the way that this is presented in the media, it is put out there in a very ambiguous way to the point where the authors of this paper are sometimes actually called archaeologists. They are not. They are engineers. Um, they are attributed to having knowledge that they do not have. And it also makes it sound as if all archaeologists everywhere agree with the conclusions that were drawn by this paper. Well, I, I, I do... I do want to add an addendum to that. I don't want to think about it in the sense of knowledge they do or don't have. I want to look at that because if this was written by an archaeologist who had gone to all the perfect grad schools and all that, it would still have huge problems. This is, this is and I would still say stuff. I would still say that they're being attributed with knowledge that they can't possibly or don't have because some of the claims made are just out there. I actually I encourage everyone, even if they don't have the proper education or the background we have, to 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 come up with ideas. It's never bad to come up with ideas, yeah. but um, you have to f at least find some some proof to support it and evidence. Exactly. And it, it never... Or, or, to to not, or not ignore proof that's already there. Exactly. To, to just consult the published uh, uh, literature on, on the site and on, on uh, such things. Yeah. So, Jens, can you tell us that your, your project, you, you post, they have a, a blog, we'll link it in the show notes, and yep. you posted a, a nice, bulleted um, kind of response to the paper itself. Mm -hmm. I don't yeah, want to get... The, the Tepe Telegrams, it's tepetelegrams.wordpress.com. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a lovely website, a lovely blog. I went and checked it out. Um, Thank you. Thank you. Oh, and I, and I wrote down, I have three points that I pulled out of all of the points that you put in there. And I'm not saying that these are the most important points. These are just the ones that resonate the most with me because they're, they're things that yes. Jeb and Ken and I have harped on over and over and over on the show. And if you would like to uh, kind of go over your post first, and then we'll come back to my favorite points. But um, can you tell okay. us about your rebuttal? Yeah, um, maybe I just start because you mentioned the the, the comet impact. I uh, start with that. Um, they are saying that on this peculiar pillar, um, we call it Pillar 43, actually, the name Walter Stone itself, interestingly, derives already well, from... Wait, it's, it's called the Watcher Stone? They call it the Watcher Stone? Yeah, but that's a term oh, already no. borrowed from French literature, from yeah, pseudo-archaeological. Pseudo it, it, yeah. it refers to giants in in the book of Genesis. Yeah, so, so we, we, oh, strictly number, we strictly number the pillars in order of their discovery. So for us, it's Pillar 43. Um, and they say it depicts uh, an event uh, on the onset of the Younger Dryas. So if you remember the radiocarbon dates I just mentioned for the very same enclosure this pillar was found in, we have a quite a gap of about a thousand years. Basically, so, the, basically the entire Younger Dryas. Yeah, so we are talking <laughs> about a document here remembering or commemorating an event happening a thousand years earlier. I mean, of course, we could argue that the, the wall plaster was, uh, was done sometime later when the pillars, we even have yeah. evidence for reuse of all the pillars, but a thousand years still seem quite a leap to me. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, it, but, it's not, it's, it's not the worst problem here, but it, it's no, something no. Worth, no, worth noting. Yes. No, but it's a good place to start. Yeah. yeah I just wanted to put this <laughs> into perspective. Yeah. Oh, no, us. no. I absolutely agree. Um, the, the second thing would be um, we still don't know if these enclosures were really, in, often 
happen in reconstruction you see a white field and an enclosure under an open sky and this is where all these uh, these uh, orientation discussions coming from the pillars are oriented to to, to solstices and and what else uh, certain stars aligned to certain stars but actually there is quite uh, some strong possibility that these were subterranean uh, structures <laughs> and we even have a building historian who uh, was convincingly discussing that they may have roofs so um, nice. that nice. would i mean you still can observe the stars from from a roof that's not sure. a problem but uh, the the uh, orientation of certain pillars or the the um, orientation through these so-called porthole stones would actually at the moment just lead into into a wall or into into soil would be more difficult if these were really subterranean roofed structures actually and one thing we should point out i mean <clears throat> archaeoastronomy has been around for a long while in the sense of people wanting to look at alignments but yes. there was a period starting really in the 1970s where people like E.C. Krupp and especially Anthony Avini were like, look, if we're going to be serious, we have to be very specific about these alignments and what could really be seen. Yeah. And you don't always see that in these discussions because here's the thing. You put a lot of standing things up at some point, point A, point B is going to hit something interesting, point C. Yeah. Like that's, yeah. that's just a reality. We've, we've pointed out before on the show that you could hypothetically go out into your backyard, pick a random feature of your backyard, and it will align to something. Yeah. And it's even harder if there was a roof over your backyard. Right. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, another point, um, and admittedly, I'm on thin ice here because I am yeah. no expert in, in archaeoastronomy, but to me, it seems quite a stretch that um, asterisms and star constellations should be um, yeah, constant over cultures and, and yeah. such a long period of time. I mean, of course, the stars are still in the sky and people looking up, seeing things there. But that they should connect the very same stars into similar constellations right. is something that I have actually problems to, to believe. Leave, um, that's my. So bi that's actually my biggest. I mean, there. I have some other issues with the backdrop, but from a pure evidence perspective, that is my biggest problem. And here, I can I can bring a little new world archaeoastronomy to I think kind of make a point. Okay. One, several of the criticisms pointed out that, and I, I think you may have mentioned this. Scorpion's actually not so bad because there does seem to be kind of around the world people look at this constellation that various cultures see as a scorpion, like scorpion. That mm. one actually kind of stands out. But after that. <clears throat> These are very arbitrary. I mean, most famously, uh, there were Andean peoples that, instead of using the stars to make constellations, used the spaces between stars. Yeah. They used the dark spots. In Mesoamerica, uh, amongst the Maya at least, Orion's belt, like the three stars, yeah. were actually the three hearthstones of creation on the back of a turtle, and they did not connect to all the rest of the stuff that's Orion. In North America, those three stars were involved uh, potentially in the Mississippian society with uh, the eye and hand motif that involved the pathway to the Milky Way and the other world at various times of year. And yet in this paper, they start throwing around like Libra and other much later right. constellations. And while mm -hmm. I suppose given that the given that the Zodiac was to some degree, and I am not an archaeo astronomical historian, so maybe somebody could comment on that, but this is the region of the world where those are in, are invented, but way, way later. Jens also points out in his article or in his blog post that <clears throat> we have to first assume that the sky that we see today is exactly the same or close enough 12,000 years ago. My, 
My understanding is that you had some comments in your thing. You had some comments on the blog that, that exactly, that. and they said um, basically it with, with a minor margin it would be a rather yeah. similar, or you can just calculate it back for computer programs. So they may have a point there. As I said, I'm not an expert, but it is puzzling to me if we really are looking to the same same yeah. the, uh, the, the, images. Yeah. The thing the thing that does move with that when people talk about the zodiac, they're actually talking about you know when they talk about your zodiac sign or like you know it's it, this this the month of Aquarius or whatever. They're talking about where the sun is in relation to the Earth. Not that <laughs> has changed a bit. That changes. Uh, to some degree, but that's not what we're talking about here. So yeah, we're talking about minor differences, but it's huge potential cultural differences. That's the real problem. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go to break real quick. And when we come back, um, we'll start digging into some specifics here. The Architect podcast hosted by Chris Webby Webster and Chris Boone Sims is a show dedicated to the technology of the modern archaeologist. On the Archaeotech podcast, we interview people using interesting tech, and we dig into the issues, advantages, and try to uncover the disadvantages of the digital age and going paperless. We all know there is no paper in the future, or should we say, paper has no future. Check out the show at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash Archaeotech. Let's get back to the show. And we are back, and we are still talking about Gobeki Tepe with uh, Jens Northrop from Germany here. And so we do want to talk about the images that are on the pillars, and that's actually going to lead us into a, a larger discussion. So before we get into that, I yeah. want to talk a little bit about um, the media's representation of this, what I was able to glean from the media about where this concept came from that's being presented in this paper. and. It does. It does trace directly back to Ignatius Donnelly in. Um, and, but there's this interesting article that was linked in one of the media articles that I wrote, and I will that will be in the show notes. And there was an interview with Graham Hancock back in uh, 2015. And what's interesting about this is that it's very almost verbatim what Graham Hancock said in that interview with what is being said about the paper and this discovery of the comet and the dating thing. And Graham Hancock is also the individual who uh, tried to align the Great Pyramids with the three stars in the belt of Orion, and it turns out that the only way that would actually be real is if you flip them upside down and reverse them. Well, he's working. He's working with Robert Paval. He's all right. So, what this is? This is part of a much larger tradition. You mentioned Ignatius Donnelly. Let's start right there. Ignatius Donnelly is the guy we've talked about him before that gives us the modern concept of Atlantis, the super hyper diffusionary civilization. He also wrote a book called Ragnarok: The Age of Fire and Gravel. And I'm going to literally write, read the very first paragraph from wiki to you right here. In Ragnarok, Donnelly argues that an enormous comet hit the Earth 12,000 years ago, resulting in widespread fires, floods, poisonous gases, and unusually vicious and prolonged winters. The catastrophe destroyed a more advanced civilization, forcing its terrified population to seek shelter in caves. As cave dwellers, they lost all knowledge of art, literature, music, philosophy, and engineering. And that is pretty much what a whole slew of people, like Graham Hancock, like Andrew Collins and others 
Uh, in fact, there's a fantastic article. I want to say it's in 2006, but I could be wrong about that. From a UCL, uh, University College London edited volume on consuming Egypt. And there are two authors in there that write a really cool article, and they are Lynn Picknett and Clive Prince. Now, they write about Stargates, and they are they worked um, uh, with other people that are – they're the type of people and the people they work with who show up routinely on like Ancient Aliens and so forth. Um, and they wrote a really cool article for this University College London thing more or less describing the school of alternative – Egyptology that had emerged on the Giza plateau in really the 1990s with Graham Hancock being the sort of chief standard bearer. And they all pretty much have this concept of a ancient law civilization that is destroyed at the end of the ice age, pretty much like Atlantis. Um, and it's spread out. And the memory of this catastrophe is found in various monumental structures around the world and in various versions of this, this catastrophe may repeat soon and we are being foolish to ignore these ancient signs from the lost wise past. And that's pretty much what we find in the article we're discussing. Well, I believe Graham Hancock gives us the date of 2030 as to when the next comet's supposed to come and kill us all. So we have a new end times date to look forward to. <laughs> um, but what I... I found it interesting that what Graham Hancock's in Graham Hancock's interview, a lot of what he was saying is almost directly repeated in the parts of the paper that correlate. Um, the whole thing with first off, they're even at Gobekli Tepe. The date is almost identical. It's almost as if they started with the date and then incidentally found something that correlated with that. And the other thing. Well, hang on. I want to slightly revise before you continue. Before you continue, I do want to slightly revise something I just said. Um, the paper we're talking about does not talk about a super ancient civilization. No, it does not. Things they cite in the things they cite in the paper and the larger context. That's the larger context, but they don't explicitly say that in the paper. They just <laughs> cite people that are talking about this at that date. Right. Yeah. So they are using as reference people who do push this theory, uh, which is questionable in my opinion. That's my opinion. I, I would not have used that as a reference myself unless I was debunking it. Um, but it, the other thing that I found interesting was the specific use of the pillar that they are using. And they call it the vulture pit, uh, the, yeah. the, the, the vulture Still pillar. There. Yeah, the vulture stone. Um, because it, they look like vultures. I, they look like vultures to me. I don't know if that's what they really are, but to me, they, they do. Oh, actually we look we like agree. Vultures. We agree that they're vultures. You can see it in the yeah. neck and the beak. And that that's not the problem here, I think. No, it's not. No, it's, the, and, the and animal they, is they not vaguely, the problem. Yeah. They vaguely look like they vaguely look like, like the vultures in the murals at Chateauhuyuk, right? Like they're kind of exactly. similar looking. And well, I mean, they're you vultures. Have a point. That, that, that's a tradition already because we're talking about pre-pottery Neolithic iconography here, and this is something uh, in a much much larger context than only Göbekli Tepe's pillars. Actually, these images appear on stone vessels, on placards, on shaft straighteners, on the pillars, on wall paintings. So we, we know. So Jens, what you're, Jens, what you're saying, it sounds like, is that every single object they had was a warning. About, I'm, I'm joking. But you're <laughs> saying this iconography is found everywhere and not just here. Exactly. Uh, and interestingly, I mean, they, they just picked Pillar 43 because of this really impressive uh, decoration. And I agree. It's, it's the coolest pillar we have around in this enclosure, for sure. But it's not the only one. Well, so, it uh, looks like they picked uh, yeah. that one specifically because it's one that Graham Hancock has addressed himself. And that's where the correlations start to make me go, hmm, because they are directly picking from him, it looks like. 
Okay. Another problem actually is, but I mean, we have, in the meantime, we have more than 60 pillars and a lot of right. them are richly decorated. Uh, the point is that even pillar 43 has much more decorations than are discussed in the paper because the other sides also bear reliefs and they are not uh, at all mentioned. Um, so it looks a little bit like cherry picking uh, certain elements to, to just um, yeah, support, a, support an idea. Interestingly, we have, uh, if we look closer into the iconography, we even have certain different um, foci in each enclosure. So each enclosure has another animal in the focus. So why it's birds, huh. mostly vultures, in enclosure D. Uh, enclosure C has a lot of birds, uh, a lot of boars. There are snakes in another enclosure. So um, we are interpreting this as, um, and of course this is questionable as well, as some kind of a social component, maybe like totem animals or right. something. So different groups active in different enclosures. So you really have to look at the context, the whole context of an enclosure and not just a couple of pictures on a single pillar. So that's a bit difficult in my opinion, actually. Or, or, or alternatively, maybe every single enclosure is a memory of a different horrifying massacre. So maybe the one, the one is, a, is the snake uprising. And another one is when the slugs are mur no, anyway, but but so that's interesting, Jens, that each yeah. each room within the larger site has a specific animal that it seems to have more of in its representation. That's, yeah. that's what you're saying. Yeah, even there's more to to the peculiar iconography of Pillar 43. So the vulture and the headless man. Uh, this is actually it's it's almost a topos in, in uh, pre-pottery Neolithic iconography. We have in Chatelhuic, for example, also depictions of vultures and headless people. We have at Gerbertli, we have uh, sculptures of birds crouched on separated human heads. We have even separated sculpture heads in the filling of these enclosures. And this actually is interesting if you get an idea about Neolithic uh, mortuary ritual in that time and area, where they have a, showed a certain concern uh, for the disarticulation of bodies. So you know the famous Jericho skull, for example, right. which were retrieved and replastered and exhibited. So I think this is, there's some much, much more complex narrative going on here. These are not just symbols substitutional for events or ideas. This is a whole narrative, actually. For, for our listeners, there are several sites with the ones from Jericho being the most famous where yeah. uh, these heads that we believe are probably relatives or ancestors of the pe or the people who did this were made to look more lifelike. They had clay and plaster put on them. They would have shell or other a stone and other materials to like yeah. make the eyes in the, look alive and other elements. They were in essence, I don't want to call it taxidermy, but I mean, they were they were reconstructing the dead. Yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Are, you are saying that there are human skulls that have had this material applied to them to give them a yeah. more lifelike yeah. appearance. Yes. And, okay. and uh, this is where the, the pictures become even more interesting um, because uh, this combination of vultures and dead bodies uh, is quite interesting. If you think about the exclamation process behind these rituals, I mean, you need an exclamated skull to replaster it. And yeah. even today in certain areas in Asia, there is this, uh, it's called sky burial, where yeah. Vultures are actively helping in uh, deflesh the bodies. And uh, this was put forward as interpretation for these depictions in Chapelhuk, for example, but also at Göbekli Tepe, that maybe necrophagous animals, animals somehow played a role in the exclamation of the bodies. And while we don't have proof at Göbekli as of yet, we didn't find much human, human bones. Right. But what we did find is a lot of bird bones from corvids, 
And uh, also vultures, so uh, ah. in particular necrophagus birds all around the side. So I'm not saying it's the smoking gun evidence, but something but was going on. That's there. interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Attracting, attracting these birds. Yeah. So, yeah. so but this, this is good, though, because what Jens is providing us with is evidence that allows us to make a guess, a hypothesis about okay. the use of that space. What we're being it's provided. Actually, it's all pop. It's all published evidence by the way yeah, yeah and you do mention that in your in your um your rebuttal that this type of published evidence was ignored somehow by the authors of the paper that we've been discussing where they assign a new purpose to the space without any actual evidence to back that new assignment up yeah do you want to talk about that some oh well <laughs> i mean I, I know that there is, is plenty of academic literature out there, so it's really impossible to, to get uh, everything. Uh, you, you can't read everything. But I think if you're looking into a peculiar question, it would at least a, a simple Google search actually would lead to our full publication list on the blog. So, I, so they, they, they cite uh, Schmidt a couple of times. Yeah, but older stuff, as far as I remember. Old, older stuff, yeah. There's, there's 2001, preliminary report, 2003, and it looks like it's basically your field, like the what we call an informe in Latin America, the 2003. Field reports, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Not, not final analysis. Uh, for our listeners, if you don't know, you, the, we always write up a, when we do something, we always write up an initial field report. What did we dig? What did we specifically find? Pictures, all of that, as just like an initial record. But what we really end up working with is, and then we publish an analysis to answer specific questions. And that's not what that is. And then the last one is uh, 2010, uh, Gobekli Tepe, the Stone Age Sanctuaries. This this looks to be a new results of ongoing excavations with a special focus on sculptures and high reliefs. And that's yeah. in uh, Documenta Prehistorica. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a, I think it was some kind of conference. Yeah. So yeah. they didn't, um, so the it sounds I like they're not, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say another one in the same in the same thing. So, I again, I'm not an archaeoastronomer, but I do have at least a little a little background in, in that. And I found it interesting that they did not cite a lot of archaeoastronomy. They cited a little. They certainly didn't cite any history of, as far as I can tell, uh, history of the zodiacal uh, asterisms and constellations. Uh, other than there's there's one that I that points to a hyperdiffuse. Yeah. Uh, uh, a Paleolithic planetarium underground, the Cave of Lascaux, which is on migration and diffusion, which if you go there, a lot of the stuff there is the kind of stuff we cover on this show. Um, it's not an <laughs> academic journal, as far as I could tell. Uh, I could be wrong, wrong about that. And yeah, there's, it's not exactly like there's a – if I wanted to do this, I would want to have all the possible evidences of – continuity until you do have a historical record that talks about these constellations. You've already given us more continuity to sites like Chattahuyuk later mm -hmm. than I believe is in the paper. Uh, and there's certainly no history of these asterisms that would even hint at it going back to the Ice Age and what we're seeing here. And again, maybe I missed that somewhere, but I don't think so. I think so neither. Yeah. No, there a lot of the takedowns that I have seen, uh, as well as Jens, because there have been several archaeologists who have responded to this, uh, not just at the poor handling of it by the media, but also by the paper itself. Mm -hmm. And a lot of their complaints are the resources that are used and the citations that are made in the paper are not up to par with what we would expect for an article being published in a peer-reviewed journal. Um, 
And I mean, say what you want. Academia can be rough, and we are we they have very very high standards as to what they want to see when something goes to publication. And, and to see a paper like this get through, it, it's raised a lot of eyebrows and a lot of ire. I would say um, some people Which have been a not, lot. Not the last time we're going to be talking to. No, it's not actually. Times. There was a lot of stuff happened this week. We'll be covering it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of weird shit that went down. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, so Jens, can you can you tell us about like what was your first reaction when you saw this come through? What was your first like as honest as you can be on air reaction when you saw this come through and. Other than writing this rebuttal, what were what are some of the steps that uh, your group, your project, is trying to go through? Because it, it directly affects you. So, what are you guys going through to kind of like reverse some of this here? It's, someone pointed out the paper in an email to me, I think last Thursday, and I clicked on the link and I just read the the uh, headline and I thought, um, yeah. I don't spend time reading that. We, you know, we get a lot of emails uh, going into this direction. We get right. plenty, plenty of, of theories and suggestions. And right. you, at some at some point, you just start uh, sorting things uh, out if you read certain keywords. And, and as we had talked about, this is not the first time that people with extreme claims have centered on Gobekli Tepe. No, so no, no, that no. was my first reaction too. Yeah. So I, I was just skipping the paper and saying, yeah, okay, it's uh, maybe. I didn't even look 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 up did, didn't look up the journal. So, um, mm-hmm. but but when uh, my colleague pointed out that the paper actually had in DOI, so uh, it it looked serious. Um, still, I I didn't uh, went into it uh, until the first media reports popped uh-huh. up, and then I said, oh, it's actually it's more serious than you thought. So maybe you have a look into the paper, and yeah, already while reading the paper i came up with the points i finally listed in, on the blog um so i felt the need to at least address some kind of reply because um i don't have hard feelings to any any of the authors i don't know them personally and actually i i encourage um if people come up with ideas but um there, there are certain things in need to be discussed and this is in particular the archaeology of the site it's not a dark room we have pl- 20 years of re- Research have provided plenty of material as of yet, and I think this is something that should be considered at least. Well, let me let me ask then. You, you know, you you've made it quite clear they're they're. I, I think we can say this safely. They're clearly ignoring a lot of work that you've put out there. Not just you, but your whole team and other people and people that have worked on Chateau Hill could put out there, and other people that have worked yeah. on the larger context. That work is not there. It should be there. Um, do you find this? You said you have no hard feelings. Yeah. Are you at all disres- Do you feel disrespected at all? Well, I, 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 no, I'm, I'm actually I'm more uh, surprised that there is a large apparatus on pre-pottery Neolithic iconography that is not reflected in the paper. And even if you come up with new ideas, you at least have to point out that there are already some ideas yeah. how to interpret these things. Yeah. You, you can say somebody's wrong, but you have to yes, deal with it. Yeah, and this is I think this is the the most. Uh, annoying thing for me where it's just uh, it looks like we finally decoded this and no one else ever had an idea what's going on here and that's just not true yeah well you know just go on google earth and find a bunch of maya cities that are actually farm fields you know, <laughs> yeah something that we, we've talked about gold, that velocity of gold Yes. <laughs> you can find that on Google in five minutes. Yes. All right, let's go to break real quick, and when we come back, we will uh, we'll wrap this sucker up. So. 
Hosted by archaeologist Emily Long, Trial Tales is an archaeology podcast with stories told by archaeologists about the crazy world of archaeology. Emily weaves a tale of wonder and excitement with her intriguing questions and imaginative editing skills. Check out Trial Tales today at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com forward slash trial tales. Now let's get back to the show. And we are back. And so... As just pointed out, we've, we've kind of covered this. There's, there's not a lot to this, but there is because it's, it's gotten blown way out of, out of, uh, gotten blown up quite a bit on the media and it's getting a lot of credit where personally, I don't think it deserves that kind of credit. I don't know what your guys' opinions are. I, I I'm, a, I'm about like to it. say, I'm about to say a thing that might surprise our audience very slightly. I actually don't entirely blame reporters for this one. Oh, I don't because either. Because it is, it, well, I sometimes have bad mouth reporting on, on, on the show, but but it's in a peer reviewed journal. Exactly. And and like this one, we're gonna we're gonna be talking about some other things soon. This one immediately leapt out to us because we know the background of people that are trying to argue for some vague form of a super civilization or an Atlantis or something about 11,000 years ago. This is a very familiar claim to us. It goes back to Donnelly. If you're an expert in crazy bullshit, like we have all become, uh, this is very familiar. So immediately tripped our wires. But if you, but none of that's in the paper other than you have to know the citation. So this is not obvious necessarily as something that would be in the realm of say the watchers that got mentioned. Um, this is not something that would immediately jump out. So it's a peer reviewed journal. It's something that to a lay person or even a somewhat educated, uh, person, uh, that's doing science reporting, doesn't know a lot about archeology. span This is not like, Oh, and reptile people are ruling the world. Like it doesn't jump out at you like that. So I can see why once it got through the peer reviewed journal, I'd be very curious who reviewed it. Um, it's, uh, I could see why it got covered. Uh, so that, that is something I think we should say. Reviewer number three was definitely asleep at that point. Um, or yeah, I I don't want to comment on that. I, you know, no, it's it's a joke. It's a meme joke. Reviewer number three. Um, no, I, I think, I think the word we're looking for here is this, this article is very dog whistly. Is this, because like Jeb was saying, it doesn't out and out come out and say certain things, but it's it's there if you know what you're looking at. Um, and the one part we, the one part we didn't really discuss much. So we talked about like Graham Hancock and Andrew, but there are some archaeologists, not most. The vast majority of people who have looked at this do not support this, but who tie this into this idea that there was a commentary. I mean, this is what they're talking about: a right. commentary strike in. Yeah. Uh, the e- Eastern North America, and they point to some specific geological uh, elements, and they talk about was it nano diamonds and nano other things. Diamonds, yeah. yeah, there are some people that support that. I actually went to one of the presentations on this at the SAA, and I remember the room being absolutely packed, like to the point where they probably should have called the fire marshal. So <laughs> archaeologists were presenting this, and they were very interested in it. The crowd was huge. At the same time. Uh, there were lots and lots of skepticism, and that skepticism has largely grown. Uh, there was an article a few years ago that was pretty much like, yeah, we don't find any evidence of this. But this is also something you see in the press from time to time, like, oh, this killed off all the mammoths, or oh, this killed the Clovis people, instead of, you know, Clovis being a projectile point that then changes into a, yeah, another projectile point. It makes a good point. story. So. Yeah. One thing I will give the media in this, and, and I highlighted it a few times uh, in the notes that I'll be sharing with you guys, uh, the two articles that I read – 
both of them said at the end, one of them brought up the nano uh, diamonds and was like, but this has largely been debunked. That was their words, not ours. Um, and then the other article said, you mean, that, one of the new, you mean one of the news stories, not the research article we're talking right, about. Right, right. One of the news articles that was on the internet uh, brought up the nano diamonds and then immediately said that the nano diamond idea had been largely debunked. Uh, another, that's gotten a lot of press. So I'm not surprised by that. Yeah. And another one of the articles that I read, um, specifically ended their their article with, you know, this is a great story, but it's still mostly speculation. So even though these were multi-paragraph articles that were written favorably towards the article that we are discussing, um, their conclusions, they did go out of their way to put a skeptical statement in the article itself. There was a skeptical note. Yeah. Yeah. There, there was a skeptical nod, um, but they didn't break it down. Not like we're doing. And I don't know, I, I guess I don't expect them to do that, but it would be nice if they would. Um, well, no, and I think that's, I think that's why we're in this business. I mean, we, uh, we, uh, I, I saw Sharon Hill put on Facebook a few days ago, a, a good solid article, um, about science communication. And one of the things that stood out, they talked about how very frustrating frustrated scientists can be with the media and, and why this is a real problem and that journalists actually have to sort of learn how to speak scientists. But yeah. one of the things that stuck out at me was a paragraph that talked about, and increasingly scientists are realizing they kind of have to cut out the middleman and do some of this themselves, Yeah, it which it, is what it, we're doing. Just just today, I, I read about a, a wish, some course like this was, uh, was offered when I was in university, but the university I studied on just offered today a course on science communication specifically for archaeologists. Oh, so nice. Awesome. Nice. stuff is there, so we're doing it. So uh, we're looking into a bright future. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, and that, that's great. That's exactly what we need. We need to, those of us who are out of school need to learn how to use social media and learn how to use the media to our advantage. And those of us who are still in school need to be educated on ways to successfully do that. So in the future, we don't have to rely on secondhand reporting on something where like with Jens's project, where they're running a, a blog to tell you what they're doing so that you can follow it firsthand and you don't have to worry about getting secondhand information. And I, and I will say as somebody who's looked at quite a bit at the history of archeology span recently, um, you will see it actually used to be more common in the past for archaeologists to get in media. I think they one, they had more access and two, yeah. they seem to be more willing, you know, so like Sir Leonard Woolley would like write popular books about archaeology and do BBC interviews. And yeah. uh, Mortimer Wheeler kept winning like awards because he had an amazing, he had amazing facial hair. Uh, <laughs> he kept winning awards for like top entertainer or top television personality in the 1950s and he would very charismatically present on this stuff and that has for multiple reasons come to an end and it's it's not just archaeologists not wanting to reach out it's also a change in the media the media uh, ecology where once you would go get a scientist of, of any kind in, in starting in the 1990s especially there was increasingly well let's just get somebody who's good on tv and they can just present it rather than get a get a specialist uh there's been there are multiple reasons for this and that's a bigger that's a bigger topic than this discussion but now that you don't need to go land a tv contract now that you don't need to do this you can instead do what we're doing and what yens is doing and with the the tepe telegrams get that stuff out there ourselves that has to happen yeah so on that note yens you guys are going back out you're still working at uh, Gobeki Tepe. So what are what are yes. your plans in the future for that site? 
actually the team is right now preparing uh, to to continue field work but at the moment um, there are shelters constructed over the excavation areas uh, just for protection reasons you know all the stuff was un was covered the last 12,000 years and now these archaeologists came and pulled everything out of the soil and it starts to rain and well it was better protected the last 12,000 years than the last <laughs> let's say five years right. so uh, now now there are shelters constructed to just keep everything nice and uh, have some well turkey really wants to present this to tourists and uh, i can completely understand this oh yeah absolutely this this is why we're not um, exactly uh, going back into big excavations right now. Maybe just some minor, minor uh, sondages here and there. But it offers us the great opportunity to finally tidy up the, the fine depots and the storage rooms and go through 20 years of material and hopefully come up with a, a shelf full of monographies by the end of this uh, this uh, research period so which which some people will then completely ignore because right. they're doing this but no that you you bring up a great point there that i don't think we've actually addressed conservation you know everybody thinks yes. oh we're going and digging conservation is an often overlooked yes. and yes. very important part or should be of, the, the, of ethical archaeology yeah the days of dig it and forget it are, are gone so we, yeah. we have the responsibility for the stuff we are unearthing and this includes to make sure that future generations also have something yeah. to, to look at. Yeah. Yeah. And you're also responsibly writing up what you're finding. Yes, exactly. Because, well, you can have the greatest finds, but if they're stored in a, in a cellar, in a damp cellar, in some uh, carton or a box, uh, no one ever will know yeah. about it. Yeah, yeah the, the amount of that that happens would probably, frankly, shock. You know, we always get accused of, being, of covering stuff up. No, we actually just end up dying before we write it up. That's actually yeah. that's actually yeah. the bigger yeah. loss of knowledge than any that's kind of true. covert cover up. Because archaeologists are inherently pack rats. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh I'm not even going to get into that. Oh, um, you've got a lot of skeletons in the closet, literally. <laughs> literally. So, yes, absolutely, literally. Uh, I wanted to ask a question. This is sort of not random, but not not in our ethical bubble. You mentioned two seasons a year. Is that just because of like the the academic and professional calendar, or is that also weather based? It's also weather-based, so uh, we once spent June and July there, but that's that's it's ridiculous. You can't. You only basically work from four to ten in the morning because otherwise there's no chance to to stand the heat. So spring and autumn, uh, it's basically for climate reasons. Yeah, man, okay, that's so like dedication. Getting up at four in the morning to go dig—that's okay. props. Yeah. yeah. And so it's it's temperature more than than rainfall. Like where I work in Latin America, you can work some. Somewhat in the rainy season, but there are some fairly obvious problems with that. So even though yeah. it's cool, it's cooler. You can't work in the rainy season. So that's that's our big thing for seasons. Well, the rain starts in late October, early November. But now with the new roofs, we actually are right. independent from weather right. and, and and heat. Yeah, nice. that's pretty cool though that you guys are getting some permanent structures out over the site. I mean, that's that's gonna that's gonna be a it game will, changer. It will also help to uh, to get tourists. Right, close to the right. side without actually into the side. So that's yeah. uh, uh, quite a good solution. Yeah, they, they did. They did the same thing at the 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 classic period village of Hoya de Serem, which was it's often been called the New World Pompeii because it was destroyed mm -hmm. in the seventh century yeah. by uh, localized uh, yeah. eruption. Yeah. And they have a very similar setup, and it's really cool. Well, and I know that there's out west. I want to say in Utah, but I'm not positive. Uh, there's the Dino Dig, which is a permanent. Oh yeah. <laughs> giant permanent site um well i mean it's not a permanent site but it's got permanent buildings um 
So, okay, so if someone wanted to get involved with your group, Jens, or they want to come out and, and they want to study uh, Gobiteke, how, how would they go about doing that? I mean, even if it's just someone who casually, like, maybe they do have one of these crazy ideas and they're like, hey, I want to go see the site for myself. How do they do that? Well, for one, you find our contact address on the blog, actually. Okay. And also, we are also links to uh, other, our other academic uh, profiles and so on. There are also directions how to visit Gebekli Tepe. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, from where it shouldn't actually be hard to uh, make your way to the site once it's reopened again for, for public visitors. And yeah, if you've got some uh, not too crazy ideas, we always love to, to, to hear about uh, what people think about our work. So read our blog, comment the blog posts. So we often, not not always, but often we try to answer uh, comments, uh, well, serious comments, to, to be honest. Um, but yeah, get into touch. Excellent. How many, you mentioned tourism, again, out of curiosity, like what's the sort of tourist flow that you get when you're there? It changed. Um, I think in 2011 or 2012, uh, not coincidentally with the National Geographic uh, story, yeah. Uh, yeah, they had a um, big cover story with yeah. the big T shape right on the front. I, I use that picture in my I use that picture in my lectures. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, um, tourism uh, suddenly uh, increased. So we had a lot of um, English or, or European and uh, yeah. uh, let's say Western tourists, American tourists right. as well. But uh, with the onset of the conflict in Syria, right, uh, this dropped uh, uh, again. So while we had like a thousand visitors a day. Which oh my is God. a problem on an active excavation site. Yeah, that's that's huge. That's good. Yeah. Uh, we now have basically just a couple of uh, local visitors. Well, at the moment, the site is closed anyway. But when it was open uh, two years ago, we uh, yeah basically had like four foreign visitors and a couple of, of local yeah. visitors. So yeah, tourism certainly is uh, in a very dramatic situation right now due to the conflict. When I when I worked in San Andres in El Salvador, which is uh, this one of the big sites, it's not the biggest, it's one of the biggest sites in El Salvador, but it's right next to the Pan American Highway and not terribly far from the capital. Mm-hmm. We would have tons of school kids come out, and that can get very complicated, you know, because you're having oh, yeah. an open dig site, and then 300 people show up, and if you're getting a thousand, wow, yeah. wow. Well, not at the same time, but over a day. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we, I think the most we had were like eight or nine. Of these large coaches uh, crawling oh, yeah. up, uh, yeah. crawling up the dust hill. So yeah, it's demanding. That's yeah. pretty impressive. Yeah. Do you have so you have a full time PR person at the site when you guys are active, or do you just kind of throw someone to the lions when the tour buses show yeah, up? Well, there are guards on the site, which yeah. are in the meantime also trained in uh, yeah, some kind of tourism management. But of okay. course, uh, you know, uh, tourist groups, as soon as they spot an archaeologist. Oh my God, uh, an archaeologist. <laughs> yeah. So how do you think, that's how, I improved my, that's how I improved my Spanish because I kept telling the same damn story every day for like six months at <laughs> yeah. Campana San Andres. Sounds familiar, actually. Yep. All right, well, Jens, do you have any final thoughts about this article and, and the reality and the fantasy of Gobe Teke? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did not do this to slap anyone in the face. So if people have ideas, um, uh, I encourage, really, I encourage people to come up with ideas, think about stuff. We're specialists, but sometimes we we are maybe too much of a specialist and don't see the things left and right of the path we're following. So yeah, come up with ideas, but please at least consider the stuff we are writing as well. And if you get into touch, uh, 
try to show respect for our work as well as we are trying at least to listen to to what you may have might have in mind yeah I think that's a good sentiment there, actually. Show, show some respect for the, the stuff that has come before you, and we will listen to the stuff that you have to tell us. I like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, we, we come up, all archaeologists come up with crazy ideas. Of course. That, that's, that our they, job. That, that's our job. And then we go, oh, yeah, there's a piece of evidence that says no. All right, fine. Exactly. Exactly. Consider the evidence. That's all I what's all I'm asking. Come up with ideas, but if you find evidence that's contradicting your idea, be fair enough and say, okay, maybe it's not such a good idea. Jeff, final thoughts? No, that's that's I, I think that that is a fantastic place to to leave this. And my final thought would be the fact that we were able to get this out. I am so excited we're able to get you to talk about this in kind of like a breaking news timely sort of way. Manner. Yeah, a timely <laughs> manner. We don't we often talk about things that are not so timely, and and this is a, 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 a interesting sort of deviation. That's so why I, I very much the ends want to thank you so much, and keep on doing the public stuff you're doing and getting that word out there because that's that is just awesome. Uh, thank you, and thank you for actually inviting me to the show. It really was a pleasure to finally have a voice in this because apparently no one was interested to to oh, listen no. what we have to say about this. I want to put a shout out. I think did they, did you know David Anderson? Is that how you got? Is that how you got in touch with us? Yeah, David recommended yeah, exactly. him to us. Yeah, yeah, I just want to have, put a shout out then. So thank you, David, for uh, for helping making this possible. Absolutely. Well, Jan, thank, thank you, you very yeah. much. And if you ever want to come back on the show and give us an update on what you guys are oh, doing, yeah. or if there's a new yeah. weird topic that you just want to talk about, you let us know, and we'll be glad to yes. have you back on. Yeah, same for you. If you've got more questions, I'm happy to answer. So uh, really, really it was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Trials as one will call. No, we don't do a dinosaur. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed it. Our music was provided by Archaeosuit Productions. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes or Stitcher and share us wherever you use social media. You can contact us with your questions, comments, or angry email at archiefantasies at gmail.com. You can follow the podcast at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. You can follow the blog at www.archiefantasies.com and get updates on Tumblr and Twitter at archiefantasies. You can also look for us on Facebook. If you're looking for the show notes for this episode, go to the podcast website at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com slash archiefantasies. Thanks again for listening. No, we don't do dinosaurs. No, we don't do dinosaurs. We don't do dinosaurs. The show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.